Hebrews chapter 11, the great faith chapter, the hall of faith in Hebrews. And we're going to walk through this in three separate sermons uh, over the next couple weeks. We're going to spend today in just verses 1 through 16, and then we'll look at the middle part uh, next week, and then the latter part the week after that. Or maybe later. I think my trip to Nicaragua was in there somewhere. We'll figure it out. Hopefully. Faith. My family goes on a lot of road trips, a lot of very, very long road trips. Uh, partially, well, I would say mostly, because our family lives really far, the, far away. I think our closest family member is about a nine-hour drive. Is that about right now? About eight, when my wife drives. It's, uh, it's a long I totally set you up for that one. But. Uh, yeah, so eight hours, I think one is about 18 hours. Um, my brother's, oh man, if we drove straight, probably be 32 hours. I don't know what it would be. It'd be something crazy. And my parents are about 18 hours as well. So it's a long, long way. And we don't fly. It's not because we're afraid of it. I'm just afraid of paying for it. So I try to avoid that at all costs. It just gives me the jitters um, seeing that bill come through. So with four kids, that's just out of the question. So we drive a lot. And, and I have learned something about my driving habits as I get older. I hate driving on long trips at night. I just hate it. And it's not because I'm afraid of it. I, I don't mind it in that sense. It doesn't make me fearful. It's not even so much that I, I struggle with it. I can see, okay, it's, it's not that. It's that after driving for a long time, those hours after the sun go down are the longest hours of the trip. Because you can't see progress anymore. All you see is what your headlights light up or the couple of streetlights in front of you or you can see the, cloud, the cars around you, but you don't get to see that you're actually making progress. And it's so depressing. And so I force my family, when we go on long road trips, we get up at 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock in the morning. And we will drive until the sun comes up. And I don't mind that. Now, at this point, I need to confess something that I said in the first service, and I confessed it there too. Um, I said, and we've got some kids with us, so let's see if you can figure out what's wrong. I said, you know, it's just a beautiful thing as you're driving west and you see the sun come up on the horizon. <laughs> what's wrong with that statement? The sun rises in the east. See, I was just, I was just trying to see if they were awake. Yeah, so as I was saying it in first service, I thought something is wrong with that statement. And then it hit me, and I thought, oh, okay, so I do know sun rising, earth rotation, all that. But the point is still valid. There's an excitement there as you see the sky begin to grow lighter. As you begin to see more and more of the landscape, that's exciting. It's sort of this unveiling, whereas when the sun goes down after 10, 12, 14 hours on the road, it's just the opposite. It's like suddenly your world just closes in around you and that hope and that joy of seeing new sights begins to diminish and it goes away and you can't really see farther ahead and you think, is this all there is? Are we just going to be stuck in the car for the rest of our lives? Okay, that's maybe putting it a bit much, but you know how it goes. Remember four kids, so that goes along with that comment. I think in our life of faith, it's the same way. In our life, as we seek to trust Christ, we can get very closed in. 
and we can see and kind of light up our own headlights, and we say, okay, this is my life around me, and I can understand this, and my family, and my job, and maybe my community, and, and, and I can see these things, and I understand it, and life goes on, and on, and on, and we can begin to think, is, is this it? Is this all that there's going to be? And it can get very depressing. What about these great promises from Scripture? What about these wonderful things that we've been studying so far in the book of Hebrews? Where are these phenomenal things that I see? And so today, we're going to talk about faith beyond seeing. Yeah, there are times, sometimes very long periods, where all you're seeing is right in front of you. Your little pool of headlights maybe a couple street lights that are lighting up along the way, and you're finding joy in that, and that's great. But you think, what about the rest of it? How do we look beyond just what we see and say, I believe in the truth that God says, whether I see it in my situation right now or not? And so we come to Hebrews chapter 11, this great chapter of faith. And I want to look at faith as confidence beyond what is seen. Confidence beyond what is seen. And we'll see this in the first two verses here. Now, faith is confidence, there's that word, in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And obviously, the rest of the chapter, he's going to go in and talk about these ancients, these Old Testament faithful people, and how they were commended for their faith. But he starts off by giving us what some would call a definition of faith, and that's okay, although I'd be a little hesitant to say you get a complete definition of faith from Hebrews 11.1, but you certainly get some key aspects of faith. And faith is such an important topic here. In fact, it appears 24 times in this chapter alone. That's out of 32 in the entire book. When an author uses a word that much in one chapter, you need to start underlining and say, what is he saying about this? Because this is a key term in this chapter. Chapter 10 ended with this statement, verse 39, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. And throughout the book of Hebrews, the author has presented Jesus Christ as the greatest way that nothing else compares to him. Nothing else we can run to for hope, for help, for, for sustenance during our life. Nothing else compares to Jesus Christ. In fact, he's not just greater than all the other alternatives. There is no other alternative. Jesus is greatest because he is the only way of salvation. And so this has been presented over 10 chapters of the book of Hebrews. And then in chapter 10, we looked at a very severe warning. If you are going to reject Jesus as the way of salvation, there is no other alternative. And then he concludes that chapter and says, but we, speaking to Christians there, those who believe in Jesus, that's not you. You're not those that shrink back from that truth, but we are those who have faith and are saved. And so now he's going to talk about this great assembly of faithful people throughout history. That when you accept Christ, you become part of this family. And let's look at them as examples of faithfulness. Now he uses this word confidence. When I think of confidence in our world today, I think of boldness. Kind of an emotional sense of being bold 
and brash. I think of uh, maybe a football team before they go out on the field and the coach is sitting them down and saying, we're going to win this, this game today. We're better than them. Everything's going to go great. You're going to go out there and you're going to, and he just goes on and on. And they run out through the tunnel and they're all pumped up, right? That's confidence. They're pumped up. That's not what this word is. Because see, that coach is missing a few key details. Does he know they're going to win today? No. He might say that. He might really, really, really mean it. He might be very emotional about it. All the players might really, really mean it, and they might be very emotional about it. But at the end of the day, they don't actually know who's going to win until the final score is presented. That's not what this is talking about. Here, confidence is not just some emotional feeling of being pumped up. It is something based on truth. The word has at its root this idea of being based in reality. It is a boldness because something is true. It's not merely being pumped up. It is knowing a chair will hold you. It is well constructed. Therefore, I have confidence to sit in it. Not just some pumped up, man, this chair is going to be really great. I mean, we can be very bold about some really stupid things, can't we? Oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to win the lottery today. This is it. I feel it. This is going to be it. No, it's not. It doesn't matter how bold you are in that sense. Confidence would actually tell you the opposite. You can be pretty confident you're going to lose the money you just paid. Confidence has to be based on truth. It has to be rooted in reality. And so this word here, when it says faith is confidence in what we hope for, it's not simply saying, I hope you feel very strongly about Jesus Christ. It is saying there is a truth that is being presented to you. It is the reality of the creator of the world who knows you better than anything else in this world who sent his son to die on the cross for you as the only means of salvation. And he has declared that through the death and resurrection of his son, you are saved. And those who are saved have eternal life with him forever and ever and ever in his glory. That's not just a good feeling. It is truth. And so we have to ask, if faith is confidence in what we hope for, where is it we're finding our confidence? What's our reality? Are we allowing what we see to define the limits of our reality? Well, this is all there is. I guess I just got to deal with it. Or are we trusting that God has more than what we see? He goes on and says, it's confidence in what we hope for. And again, in Scripture, hope is not some vague feeling of something you want to happen. It is the acceptance that something is true and counting on it to continue to be true in the future. God has promised His Son is coming back. All of this really ties into a main theme of Hebrews, which is this idea of wilderness wandering. If you know the story from the Old Testament, the Israelites in the book of Exodus, they're saved out of Egypt. They're brought into the wilderness. God lays out his law to them, enters this relationship with them. And then they walk for a very long time between that moment and finally entering the promised land. And every step along the way, they struggled and they doubted and they saw more sand and another dune, and more struggles, and more hunger, and more thirst, and more armies that were out to get them. And every day they had to make a choice. Am I going to trust that promise that God has given us that I might not see right now, or am I going to trust only what I see? 
Where is my hope? And I believe the author's doing the same thing in this chapter. And he's giving us examples along that journey of faith and saying, look at how they trusted God. and Look at how faithful He was to them. We are still walking a journey to a promised land. Our land is not a physical nation. It's the eternal reign of Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for He who promised is faithful. What a great promise for us to know that we can trust and have actual solid hope in the promise of God. So faith is a confidence, it is a hope, and then he says it is an assurance, an assurance about what we do not see. So many of these words, particularly confidence and assurance, they come right out of the courtroom. It's it's like a court case is being presented. And he's saying, look, here is the evidence. Man, if you ever hear somebody say, to be a Christian, you've got to check your brains at the door, you've just got to reject all the evidence, that is flat out not true, and that's not how the Bible presents faith to us. Faith is not rejecting everything that makes sense and just holding on to a fairy tale. In fact, it's the, op- it's the exact opposite. It's saying there is a God. He created the world. He knows how it works. That makes more sense than us trying to figure it out on our own. That's the difference. And so he says we have this assurance. It's a word in the New Testament world for proof. It's an evidence or a demonstration that something is true. We have this assurance about what we do not see. Do you see how strongly, just in one verse there, and yes, we're going to get to the rest of it, and yes, I'll hurry, but just one verse, one sentence, how much God wants you to know the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And the difference that that can make in this world where we go through situations that change like the sand on a seashore, drifting back and forth. Faith. And he says this faith, This forward-looking, looking beyond what they see sort of faith, that confidence beyond what is seen faith, that's what the ancients were commended for. And now he's going to develop that in verses 3 through 12. Let's look at a couple of examples of faith beyond seeing. The first is not a person, it's a thing, it's creation. Uh, Verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was made was not made out of what was visible. That what is seen was not made out of what is visible. Now the author here is expounding upon the early chapters of Genesis. He's saying, look, we understand that God created all things. He created it all out of nothing. We didn't see anything. There was nothing to see, and God created it. So by seeing creation, we have evidence of the fact that there is a creator. Now, of course, at this point, we have to say that fundamental truth of our faith has been completely undermined by the world today. And it's a difficult thing for Christians that the world has come up with alternative theories for where everything came from. But the Bible says there is a God and he made all things. And so there is an evidence there that what is seen can point to something else. We need to look beyond And now he's going to go into a list of several different people. We'll start with Abel. Verse 4, By faith Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did, 
By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. Now, this is interesting because the story of Cain and Abel is fairly brief in Scripture. And if you go back into Genesis chapter 4 and you look at the story, some of the things, in fact, many of the things that the author of Hebrews says about it simply aren't there. Why? Well, just to catch you up, the story, in case you're not familiar with it, the the sons of Adam, they, they bring an offering to the Lord. Each one kind of brought the thing that was most natural for them to bring. And yet, the Bible says that God looked with favor on Abel's offering and without favor on Cain's offering. And really, nothing more is said about it. There's some inclination that Abel brought the best of what he had, in that there's a heart there. But what the author is looking at is building on this idea that if God had favor in Abel, it meant that Abel trusted in God. And if God didn't look with favor in Cain, then evidently whatever act he did, it was not done out of faith. It was out of some other motivation. It's interesting that the Old Testament doesn't mention Abel's faith. And yet what the author is doing is he's tying into such an important concept that he'll develop further in this chapter that if God is pleased with someone, it is always, always only because of their faith. Their faith. You might say, wait a minute, I don't see that at all. You will as we go through because it grows and grows. Let's look at verse 5. Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Now this one we have a little more information about from the Old Testament, not necessarily in the length of the information, but in what is said. Genesis 5.24 says, Enoch walked faithfully with God, then he was no more because God took him away. And that's pretty much all we know about Enoch. Now, but there's that phrase, he walked faithfully with God which actually in the original language is simply he walked with God. The word faith isn't in it at all. But what does it mean to walk with God? It does mean to walk faithfully. It means to walk or live according to God's commands, according to God's statutes. Statutes. Now you might be thinking, as the readers would have and the recipients of this letter and pretty much everybody from the Old Testament, doesn't that just mean that Enoch was obedient? Absolutely. Absolutely it means that Enoch was obedient. But the author is going beyond what is seen to what is unseen. And the author saying obedience wasn't the ultimate issue. What drove the obedience? It was faith. He believed in God. And he explains that in verse 6. He says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So any obedient following of God has to, number one, accept that God exists. That's kind of a no-brainer. If God comes to you and tells you that you must do something, you kind of have to believe that he exists to begin with. Otherwise, you know, you're just hearing weird voices. So you have to believe that he exists, but then there's that in that he earnestly rewards those. That he re- or he rewards those who earnestly seek him. What does that mean? All obedience is trusting that God has a plan. And that that plan has a destination, a promised land, if you will. 
And that by trusting God along the way, it is the right and proper and better way than anything else that I might run after. He earnestly, or he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And so by Enoch living different than the world around him, living in such a way that God looked at him and said, you are faithful, you are walking with me, therefore I'm going to take you out of this life without you having to experience death. It was a reward. And Enoch looked beyond what he was seeing in his neighbors, in his culture, and he said, I'm not going to walk that way. I'm going to walk God's way. I'm going to trust him. He looked beyond what was seen. Habakkuk 2.4 says, The righteous person will live by his faithfulness. And the author sort of playing on that idea. Faithfulness can mean, does mean obedience, but it also means belief and trust. And so he's looking at this and saying, those who believe God showed it through their obedience. The heart of the matter is faith. Obedience is simply evidence of faith. And so when we look at these people, we're not just looking at them and saying, wow, they were so obedient. We need to look at them and say they had a great faith, but even there we can't stop. Because faith always points to something outside of itself. You need to look at the God that they had faith in. And that's actually what I think this chapter is all about. Now we go to Noah, verse 7. By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. I often wonder what Noah thought the day after God told him to build an ark. I think the day after is like the worst, right? You hear a good sermon, you have a great time of studying, maybe you go to a conference or a retreat, I remember as a, as a teenager going to youth camps, and, and you just get so pumped up, and you give your life in a new way to God, and you make a commitment to Him, and you're going to do this, you're going to witness every day, and you're going to go onto the mission field, and all this stuff, and then the next day you wake up, and you're like, ah, oh, do I really have to do that now? I mean, think about Noah. Yeah, God, I'll build a boat to save the animals of the world that you're going to bring to me somehow, and it's probably going to take lots of years, and I, I don't even think Noah knew what rain was, and he probably lived out in the middle of nowhere. You're going to flood the whole world. Don't know how that works. And, okay, God, I'm in. The next day he wakes up. What in the world was I thinking? And yet, when you think about what Noah saw, every day a world going on about its business. And you think about how we chose to look beyond that and to say, I'm going to focus on what God has promised. That there is a flood that's coming and yet God has provided a way out. And that's where I'm going to look. And that forward-looking faith beyond what he saw affected his day-to-day, moment-by-moment decision to pound another nail, chop down another tree, keep building the ark says he built the ark in holy fear. Holy fear is a response. It's a choice to say, rather than looking at the world around me and responding to that, I'm going to look at God and who he is and his holiness and his absolute sovereign authority. And I will live my life in response to him, not in response to the things I see around me. And by his faith, he condemned the world. That's an interesting phrase. 
I don't think it means that uh, Noah woke up every day and as he was building the ark just shouted at his neighbors, you bunch of losers, you're horrible, wicked sinners. I don't really think the text bears that out. But see, when you live by faith beyond what you see, you're going to look weird to the world. Now, some of you might try too hard to look weird. We're not talking about that. But, but the world's going to look at you and say, that doesn't make sense. Noah, a boat at your age and in this environment of that size makes no sense whatsoever. Why don't you stop? We know a better way. And by Noah continuing to build the ark, he was saying to them, you're wrong. He didn't have to use words. His actions were a condemnation. Some of you have felt this in your life. You might say, I'm, I'm living for Christ. People say I'm stupid and they don't understand that. They don't understand how I spend my money. They don't understand how I spend my time. They don't understand why I'm not sleeping in on a Sunday morning. They just, they don't get it. You're right, they won't. But keep going because you see something they don't. And I think what's interesting is that that condemnation, they might see what you do and go, well, I guess he thinks I'm a horrible, wicked, awful sinner because I don't go to church on Sunday morning. But someday they might look at that and that condemnation might actually turn into a signpost and they might say, I'm going to look to Jesus. So keep going. And then we get to Abraham. It was a major topic in the rest of this chapter. Let's look at verses 8 through 12. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of some or of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and as countless as the sand on the seashore. I would love to rewrite the story of Abraham, because I really don't like it. I think if I was writing my own Bible, I would just make that one different, because it's a hard story. I mean, I would change it to, to maybe God bringing some brochures to Abraham and saying, hey, look at this land, man, it's really good. No, no, check that out. Did you see that spring over there? Did you see that water over there? That's phenomenal. Look at how well your, your flocks and your crops are going to grow. Come on, Abraham, are you in? That's, that's what I'd want. And, and then Abraham goes, and, and I'd love for the story to play out, and Abraham had a, a palace, and, and, and he owned the whole land, and nobody else lived there that was against him. It was just a wonderful, eternal bliss in this promised land. But that's not the way it goes at all. At all. God comes to Abraham says, Abraham, I've got a promise for you. And here's how this is going to work. Walk that way, and I'll tell you when to stop. That's like the worst way to get anybody to do anything. Just, just go that way. How long? Well, I don't know. I'll tell you when to stop. Abraham had to have 100% trust in God. Beyond everything that he saw. Because what he saw was his home, and he was fairly wealthy. His land, he had his relatives there. He had a security there. He could have stayed there. But God says, no, look beyond that. I've got a promise for you. 
It was a promise that based on common sense made no sense at all. And yet God, or I'm sorry, Abraham chose to go. And then when he gets to the land, this promised land, he lived the rest of his life in tents, moving from one place to the next. Oh, it was his land. Just happened to have a whole bunch of other nations living there, and he never actually owned any of it other than maybe a tiny little square plot where he buried his wife. But beyond that, it wasn't his land according to the world's terms. You see, it's an interesting story. But the author picks up on this and says, Abraham didn't go because he saw a brochure. And he didn't stay in the promised land because he saw that it was the most amazing thing in the entire world. He stayed there because he looked beyond what he saw and he saw a promise that God had given him. And he said, I'll look there. And tomorrow I'll wake up and I'll look there. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day, I will look beyond what I see. And then, of course, God came and promised him and his wife a child. When you talk about looking beyond what you could see, this made no sense at all. Both of them were way too old to have children. That time of their life had passed. And yet God says, you're going to have innumerable offspring. And Abraham's thinking, there's no way we can even have one. And yet God says, I know things you don't. These examples of faith point us to God's unseen plan that has been faithful throughout the ages. Let's look at verses 13 through 16 quickly. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they are foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Guys, the promise that God has given you and has given to us is not about a plot of land somewhere on the earth. It's about an eternal promise that through Jesus Christ, our sins will be washed away. We are forgiven 100%. And that we will live in the very holy presence of God forever. And that there is a joy in that presence greater than anything we can ever possibly imagine. And that He is going to reign sovereignly over heaven and earth. And all of that stuff that our little headlights illuminate that we look at in the world around us and we say, I I just don't know if I can keep going another mile. All of that little bit that we get caught up in. The Bible says all of that's passing away. God's greater than it. And His promise is bigger than it. And so we have a choice just as they had a choice. Where are we going to look? They looked forward. And in fact, what the author is doing is saying, even when Abraham settled down in the promised land, that wasn't what this was about. It's about what you and I are still looking forward to in Jesus Christ. There is an eternal promised land that is still to come. And it is a promise that we can have absolute assurance and confidence in. And in the meantime, we live here. (laughs) And we have to get up every day and say, where are we going to look? What are we going to trust in? And it says they admitted they were foreigners and strangers on earth. 
Do we? Do we admit this actually isn't our home? That we're here for a purpose, yes, but it's a forward-looking purpose. And it says, verse 15, if they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Abraham constantly, although he stumbled in many ways, he constantly said, I can't go back. That's not what God has for me. It's interesting in the Exodus story, as the Israelites were in the wilderness and things got hard, do you know what they said over and over and over again? Hey, let's go back. Things were great in Egypt. That's the deceit of sin. That somehow it's better outside of God's plan. That somehow our own way works better and we forget about being enslaved and we forget about the struggles and the torture and the depression. But instead to live as foreigners and strangers in this world. And yes, that means we might look a little weird. But it's because we have a hope that others might not see. But forward-looking faith does something. It causes other people to look. And they say, what, what is it you're staring at? Where is your gaze pointed? Why are you always looking there? Why not right here? And they go, oh. And you say, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. Forward-looking faith is based on God's past faithfulness. Upon His ever-present truth. That's what Hebrews has been about up to here and about His future reward. Look, we have a choice every moment. Where are you going to look? Are you going to just turn on your, your little headlights of what we can understand and what we think we can grasp and control and, and say, that's, that's my life right there. And maybe some of you are living that way. And I'll go out on a limb and say, that gets pretty depressing pretty fast. And the irony is, by clamping down on that control, I think so often we feel more and more out of control. But instead, we can look beyond. And we can look to the promises of God from Scripture. We can look to the examples of those that trusted in those promises and how God continued to be faithful to them. And we can live our lives looking beyond what we see.